You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Zoe, and my co-host is Mac. Yep, that's true. Yep, and we are here to, normally we break down weird medieval texts and teach you how to turn them into cool D&D or TTRPG or story ideas, whatever whatever you want to do with these weird ideas. But essentially, we give you cool new ideas from the past to use in whatever you're creating. But today we're doing something a little bit different. Today is our Halloween episode, so happy spooky season, everyone. Whether you celebrate Day of the Dead, Halloween, Sawain, whatever spooky festival you partake in. Happy Spooktober. I like that one, Spooktober. Fair enough. <laughs> this isn't going to be that different. I still have some weird medieval texts for us. It's just that there's a theme. Nope, yeah, we're theming it this week. You know, now that we're off of our homicidal maniacs for a little while. Oh, right. Ale, of course. Yes. Well, and and, and Percival, Percival and yeah. So on and so forth. But anyway, before we get into our Halloween episode, we did want to reach out with a very special shout out to Kelly, who has been so gracious as to send us a little bit of fan art in the mail, the snail mail, which is practically as old as the the Middle Ages. But anyway, it's you can't see it, but it's beautifully packed, and I've been sitting on it all week to open it on the show. That is actually some very neat handwriting, it's too. It's beautiful handwriting, and she, like she's packed it in such a way that it's like an envelope within an envelope, so it won't be bent as you go. Oh, it says, please do not bend, also. Yes. So she was very thorough. And I think Azam was also another person to do some fan art for us, and that was digital. But what, yes, whether you do digital art or whatsoever you create if you want to send it to us digitally physically feel free we love seeing what you create but anyway let's rip this sucker open we should definitely remember to post both of the griffins on social media so everyone can see them we absolutely will i have them saved so they will be up very shortly in time for halloween so now there'll be some i guess what do they call this asmr of me ripping open a package <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be as soothing as, as they do it, but, uh, anyway, I don't think it's, okay, hang on, there's lots of tape. I think I'm going to cut this short. You should absolutely cut this short. I just wanted to make sure that I didn't spoil the surprise of seeing it before you could also see it. Is that a screwdriver? It is a screwdriver. What, you don't keep a screwdriver around? I mean, I have a letter opener right here. Oh, there you go. That, see, that's smarter. Oh, and it's so pretty. Okay, here we go. The big reveal. Ba -ba -ba -ba. Perfect. And look at this. That is beautiful art of a horrifying thing. A horrifying griffin. This is the griffin from Perlis Vows. And I think it's been, it, I think it's been beautifully painted on parchment-like paper. It's very nice. Yeah, and she signed it. Perfect. So we will definitely have to put it up somewhere where we can see it. But yes, yeah, I you will... You need to frame that. Yeah, definitely I'm going to frame it. 
I've got weird medieval art in my house all over the place, so this will be a beautiful addition to my collection. But yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Kelly, for delighting us. And we'll be sure to share all of the wonderful art in the Discord. So in case you missed its initial posting, uh, we will repost it so everybody sees it. All right. And with that, I think, with this terrifying monster, we can jump straight into our Halloween episode. All right. Let's do that then. Let me pull up my document. And I have no idea what we're getting into. You just said, oh, I'll handle Halloween. Yeah, I did not warn you at all. No, so I have no idea what we're gonna what we're gonna be doing. Which is it's probably best because it, it changed a bit in the in the offing as I was researching. Ooh, okay. So, in our first Halloween episode, Zoe told us a couple werewolf stories. Yes. I thought it would be a good follow up to collect some stories of the undead. Ooh, undead stories. And we've talked about zombies before. Uh, or Draugr, or the undead, however you mm -hmm. want to call it. That was in our Thanksgiving episode about the Vikings going to Greenland. That's right. So I guess the undead are just a holiday theme for us. I'm sure we've had undead other places, although it's escaping me right now. I don't think as prominently, but anyway. Yeah, that was very prominent. That's also our first Thanksgiving episode, not the second one, Yes. by the way, if anyone's going back looking for that. Um, anyway, uh, it had been my intention to include some more geographical diversity in this collection than I ended up actually doing. But unfortunately, it's hard to find public domain translations of a lot of medieval texts outside of Western Europe. Yeah, that is a tricky thing. In the research I've been doing, I found a lot of references to interesting sounding stories from Eastern Europe, the Arabic world, the Indian subcontinent, or several places in East Asia. But most of them don't seem to have English translations at all. And the translations that do exist are pretty recent, so I couldn't include them because I was worried about copyright violations. Yep, fair enough. Which which is where we are limited in, in our capacity. And I guess if anyone knows of a podcast or a show or a scholar or a talk on YouTube or whatever of some of these themes in those languages or that have been done in English, please let us know because we are limited by our lingual capacity here. Yeah. Yeah, find, finding a way to, like, produce new translations of stuff, get them peer-reviewed, and drop them into the public domain is rapidly becoming one of my higher priorities once I finish grad school. It's kind of crazy how needed it is. Well, no one does it anymore. No one translates. No, no. And the translations we do have, especially the ones that are public domain, I mean, you've heard this all before, are from, like, the yeah. 18th, 19th century, yeah. and they're all, like botching up the translation, trying to be deliberately archaic about it, and blah, blah, right. blah. And I mean, I've, I I may have overstated it there. People do translate, but it's kind of looked down on as like not as scholarly as writing your own um, analyses of the works in question. So it's like the people who can read these medieval languages, just read them and then write in English about them, mm -hmm. but never actually change them into English because no one would publish that. Which is kind of infuriating because you're going to translate it anyway for your paper. Right. Why not just put that out there as well? And what's worse is that a lot of up and coming either grad students or postgrads for that matter, or even, you know, professors, PhDs, whatever, rely on things that have been translated by other people or that have been translated by other people a long time ago and are therefore inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Which is a big, big problem. And I think one of the, I may have mentioned this before, but when a female translator 
translated, what was it? I think it was the Aeneid. No, it wasn't the Aeneid. It was um, Troy, the one with Troy. The Iliad? Yes. Thank you. I was thinking of the Odyssey. I couldn't bring it to mind. <laughs> uh, she translated the Iliad and it was astounding how many changes she found where the terms for women were used in a very derogatory or sexual way when the original words didn't have that connotation. So anyway, when you're doing translation, uh, or rather when you're writing a paper, citing your sources, so on and so forth, please remember you're doing so through a filter if you're using translated work. Maybe that's why no one wants to publish translations. They want to encourage everyone to go learn the languages. But honestly, I feel like that's putting a lot on students because like we can't all learn all the languages. Well, there's that and also... From my experience, that has not been a priority. In my master's degree, you did not have to do any language in order to do your dissertation. That's wild. Absolutely insane. Like, not even... I think maybe you had to do one semester of introductory Latin, which won't get you anywhere. But, yeah, yeah that was insane to me. So, anyway. Yeah, I've had one semester of Latin, and I still can't read it at all. But it was several years ago, and I haven't used it in between, so that's probably why. Fair enough. It's a very useful language for the Middle Ages, but outside of that, not as much. But anyway, anyway, anyway. problems with translation aside. Yes, uh, I have over a dozen excerpts here, so let's see how many we can get through. We might save the rest for next Halloween, assuming I remember I have them. Fair enough. I got a little carried away collecting stuff, and then suddenly I had a lot. I mean, to be fair, one of our worries was we wouldn't have enough thematic episodes to carry on doing holiday episodes like how many christmas sermons are there really that we have access to or like what are we going to do for thanksgiving when that's already outside of the medieval period so (laughs) if you have a holiday episode that is not predominantly western european please let us know because that would be really fun to cover I am not aware of a lot of these holidays because I have grown up in, you know, we both have grown up in a very Western European Christendom culture. So hit us up with some some holiday episode ideas. Yeah, that, that would actually be fun to cover holidays that we don't usually do. Yeah. But anyway, let's get to the first story. Yes. All right. So this first one is from a work by John the Blind Audelay, a 15th century monk who, with the assistance of two scribes, because he was blind and old, it's implied in like what we know of him that he was blind because he was old. Like that wasn't like a pre-existing thing. He just lost his senses as he aged. That makes sense. Cataracts, probably. Yes. But with the assistance of two scribes, he compiled a volume of original poetry in his last years of life. So far as I can tell, there hasn't been a translation of his work either. But it's Middle English, so I was able to do this one myself. Woohoo! Which will eventually have to compile the translations that we've done. There's, there hasn't been that many so far. Yeah, but we've, we've got a few. Once once we've got more, we'll, I don't know, we'll figure something out. We'll slap them up on the website or... Or, or Patreon or, like or yeah, whatever. Or something. Uh, if anyone is interested in reading more, though, there is a Teams edition online, which I actively tried to refer to as little as possible during the translation process because Teams's notes and glosses are so good that translating from their edition kind of feels like cheating. That's, yeah, that is entirely true. But if you want to see the Teams edition, or the Whiting edition that I worked from, or the articles I referred to in the process, this episode is going to have a decent-sized bibliography, which I will send to Zoe when she does the blog, so you can find it on our website. Oh, yeah. So, the reason I wanted to include this specific poem is because it's the only literary appearance I can find in English of a common motif that we often see in manuscript, marginalia, paintings, and, and so forth. 
you'll probably recognize it pretty quickly. Ooh, I'm excited. One more thing. This is a poem, and all of the, like, articles about it and criticism on it mention how ornately complex the rhyme, alliteration, and meter is. I have made no effort to preserve that. So if anything rhymes or alliterates, it's by accident. But it might sound a little weird, and that's why. It's because it's a lot of this, the, like, weird little repetitions and stuff are to fill in uh, alliterations and meet and metrical feet and that kind of thing. Poetry is notoriously difficult to translate anyway. So, <clears throat> on a slope covered in birch trees where boughs are bright, I saw a fierce boar brought to bay. Proud centhounds with loud voices run aright, of all their peace and their rest little they thought. I thought it full seemly to see such a sight, how at the side of a willow a battle position, and I've, I've noted this, the word is uh, sete, which is actually a technical hunting term, usually used to describe the hunters and their dogs moving into position. Here it seems to be describing the boar, which is interesting. Ooh. A battle position, he sought. From the noise that it was new until it was near night, from noon to bedtime, I thought it but nothing. I thought it nothing but a moment to see how he throbbed and heaved. I swear I did not pick those that, like, on purpose. The original uh, Middle English is throbbed. Yep. Yep. I don't doubt that. Hunters with horns they could blow. They hallooed their hounds with how. I never heard such outcry in the woods. Such an outcry in the woods, like I said, there's repetition, was healthy to behold, to see the hounds seize him and bring him to bay. There came barons to that bay with bold hunting dogs, they blew their bugles full clearly to embolden said dogs. Three kings there came, truly tallied, in case you were wondering whether the author could count to three accurately, he wants you to know if he can. <laughs> see, you say that you weren't going for any of this alliteration, but it's totally there. Well, I, I usually just use the words that are descended from the word that is in the thing, so it sticks around a lot. That's true, especially with Middle English. Yeah. yeah like, it, the, the language hasn't changed enough that the alliteration goes away. Yep. But there are a lot of times where there was more alliteration and I left it out. Yeah, makes sense. With singing and trifling and tales they told, each person that was there behaved as they wished. These woods and this wilderness they held all to govern. What is that face? I just recognize where this is from. This is the, the three kings and the three dead men, isn't it? It is. Ooh, got it. These woods and this wilderness they held all to govern. They possessed at their will to enjoy these woods and this wilderness that was there. I think he ran out of things to say to fill out this verse. Hearken what befell of their expedition. They enjoyed no lordship in learning. The person that wishes, listen and learn. When they were of these woods gone at their joy, they found winds full wet and weather full dark. But such a mist came on the earth. And this is a, a phrase that, again, this is the, the, what it literally says. And I don't know why he decided to write it like this. As I give you by mouth. Oh. <laughs> the worst possible way to say, as I tell you. And it's not like a... Maybe this is an idiom that fell out of favor or, or something like that. Could be. Because that's a that weird... Would, that would make it better. That would make it a little bit better. Because sometimes also there, there's words that um, kind of sound like one thing to our ears but mean something else. Like um, whiff means woman, but it's where we get our word mm -hmm. wife. So I wonder if like it's not like mouth, like that wasn't like just the word for telling you something. It's like, it just means mouth. I need to look into something. As someone, I, I saw recently, someone suggests that wedding is just like a 
mutation of wife thing, and I need to find out if that's true, because that sounds hilarious. Future Mac here. The OED does not think that's true. That would be amazing. I just saw a post. It was like a TikTok video, and someone said that a, I think it was Australian politician? Some politician. Future Mac here. I believe what Zoe is remembering is a tweet by Birmingham MP Khalid Mahmood. Said that woman was womb man. Like a man not. with a womb. And that is so incorrect on every every level. That's like saying history and herstory. It's like, no, that's not how etymology works. That's Stop it. Stop it. But anyway, that one was really egregious. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, that woman is a womb man. Like, no, sorry, oh. but no. <laughs> like, what was he trying to even accomplish there? Just like figure out a way to in- exclude trans people or something? Like you, you don't have a womb, therefore. I don't know. Who knows? It makes even less sense because in Old English, womb doesn't even mean uterus. It just means belly. Yeah, it's, yeah. Because it, what was it, like womb? Yeah, yeah the womb. The womb. Anyway, idiots aside. Yes. Of all their men and their provisions, they missed each one. All our adventures, quoth one, that we be now in. I hope for earthly honor that hardship be on us. Though we be kings full bright and come of rich kin, much misfortune has caught us for that all our power may do. I can counsel nothing but fear, but to take cover and catch some rest. By morning this mist may be amended. Our lord may deliver us with skill, or certainly our lives are lost. Okay, so catch us up here. Alright, so they were out hunting, and it was real cool, and they were fighting a boar. And then all of a sudden, there was darkness and mist and storms, and they were cut off from the rest of their hunting party. And one of them's like, we're screwed. Yes, we got lost in the deep dark woods. Yes. Okay, right on. Very spooky. I like this already. When they had gotten forth but a few feet, they found fields full fair and grasses full colorful. Oh, okay. This forest has a lot of different biomes. <laughs> <laughs> or either that or they're in Ireland, because, you know. What? <laughs> the weather changes so frequently in Ireland. You can be, it'll be bright and sunny, and then next thing you know, it's misty and you're in rain, and then you walk a little further, and suddenly you're on the beach, and it's beautiful, and there's wildflowers. Like, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, technically, it doesn't say that it's not still misty and windy and stuff. Like, they, they might have just stepped into a clearing. That might just, that might be what they're going for. That makes more sense. Shaken out of a thicket, three figures at once, murky shadows were shaped to show, with limbs long and lean and legs full frail. They had lost their lips and their livers since they were laid low. This is, incidentally, this is actually a pretty accurate description of how you see, like, the walking dead depicted in medieval illustration. Mm-hmm. Their limbs are always skeletal. Mm-hmm. They've got those, like, lipless grins. Yep. And their bellies are torn open. Yep. Like, that is, that's what they're describing here. Which, if you are looking for a reference, a very good one would be any sort of dance macabre or dance of death. Those mm-hmm. images of like skeletons dancing along with people of various different social classes is a very common motif or illustration for those things, which the Seventh Seal actually pulled very heavily from. So if you look at the Seventh Seal film, 
the image of death is sort of pulled from the image of medieval skeletal undead. I have no idea what the seventh seal is, but I will take your word for it. Oh, it's fantastic. It's this very spooky movie. It's entirely in black and white. It's a Norwegian? Swedish? Nordic film of a guy who death appears to during like the 12th century plague or something and death arrives and this man says well i'll play you chess and if i win i get to live and it's all about this guy playing chess with death and he wanders back through his home country trying to get back home and beat death at this game of chess and also the game of life as it so happens I'm having a hard time picturing how he's simultaneously playing chess and wandering back home. Well, there's like, there's we'll scenes. It's it like, again. you know, like, oh, we wander for a little bit and then they continue their chess game and then so on and so forth. All right. Oh, yes. Uh, there was no man there that durst nod nor bow, but pulled on their bridles as their steeds breathed heavily. Their horses panted and stopped. Such men as this can delay them. They see no succor beside them. But each king cried out to Christ with crossing and carping of the creed. The first king felt dread, his heart overcast, for he knew the cross on the cloth that covered the chest. I know, right? So he's... That's an interesting line. He recognizes that these people are in, not dressing gowns, but like the... Burial shrouds. Burial shrouds, yes, thank you. Yes. Or you could also read that as... He recognizes the specific burial shroud and is like, wait, I know that guy. Oh, that's even creepier. His foal would not go forth, but snorted vigorously. His fair falcon descended to his fist out of fear. Now all my gladness is gone. I shudder and am aghast of three ghosts full grim that cause me to be afraid. Often before I have walked by woods and by wilderness, but I was never so woeful in the world that I know. I expect that I was never so woeful. My wit is absent or insufficient. Certainly it will soon be seen our running will turn us to misfortune. Despite our title, I believe we have been captured. Then spoke the second king, who was great in strength, was made as a man should be of might and main. Methinks, sirs, that I see the most uncanny sight that ever folk saw under the sun and accepted, of three men full loathsome that have lost the light. Both the lip and the liver have been taken from his limbs. For if we proceed to the town as we had intended, a full perilous way, I believe, is indicated, is shown to us as I believe. I tell you no tales but true. What helps our hunting with how? Now let us race to yonder row, or quickly we may rue our actions. I think that racing to the row means let's go up to that group of dead people and see what's up. That makes sense. But you have to give all three of them a little speech, so we've still got one to go. Of course. Then spoke the hindmost king, in the hills he beholds, as in like he's staring into the hills. He looks under his hands and holds his head, which I think is describing him going like this, like grabbing his head so his hands cover his eyes and he's looking through his fingers. He's got, yeah, he's peeking through, because he's so freaked out. It's like a kid yeah. in a Disney movie. But such a dreadful knell chills his heart, as does the knife over the cattle that knocks them cold. It is three damned souls that walk in these woods. Our Lord revealed to us the clear path that the mundane world rules. My heart fares forth, frightened as Iris when it bends. Each finger of my hand clenches in terror. I am fiercely afraid of our journey. Therefore let us flee full fast. I can counsel nothing but fear. These devils will cause us to freeze in terror, for dread lest they block every escape. <clears throat> 
<laughs> 10 out of 10. It's about as long as I can do that one. That's fair. Okay, so each king has a different reaction to seeing these three dead men. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the first is just saying like, okay, we're screwed. I don't really know what to do. I think we're caught. Yes. And the second one says, well, we can't go back to the town like we'd planned. There's something weird going on here. And our, like, what's the word? Our, our skill set is not sufficient. Mm -hmm. So let's go up to this group and see what's going on. Yes. And the and third, the third one, one is just like, let's run. Might I point out that this is fight, flight, freeze? Oh, so it is. Yeah. Which is very interesting because I don't, like, that wasn't a concept for them in that day. But, and maybe this is me reaching too far, but I like to build these connections up. But that sort of speaks to me, at least, of a either subconscious or sort of inborn pattern that we have, that even if they didn't have a fight, flight, freeze pattern that they were aware of, it's still so inborn into, I guess, human genealogy, genetics, whatever, that we see it as recognizable patterns in literature. And of course, there's also fawn, but that can that can sometimes be pushed in with flight or fight. But anyway... Just interesting observation to me. Nay, we are no fiends, quoth the first, that y'all find before you. We whom y'all have... Uh, I'm translating all the plural yous as y'all because that's a plural you. And yep. if y'all don't like it, y'all can die mad about it. <laughs> Which I will say, notably, Latin and Old English, Middle English had a different pronoun for. Like for us, it's the same. It's you and you. But mm -hmm. the reason that Mac is doing this is because there were different grammatical forms in the Old English and Middle English. Right. Yeah, exactly. So every time it's ye instead of thee, I'm making it y'all. Y'all. Makes sense. We whom y'all have auspiciously met were your earthly fathers, which is ambiguous. Like, it could mean they're their ancestors. It could mean they're their literal fathers, like the three fathers of each of them. Mm -hmm. It could be a combination of those. Like, maybe that's why uh, one of the guys recognizes one of the shrouds is because he's like, oh, shit, that's my dad. Right. Yeah. But like the other ones could be just ancestors. Like, it's unclear. It's very unclear. Or maybe they're just forebears in like a general cultural sense. Right. Now y'all are more lively than leaves on the linden and lords of each town from Lorne to London. I checked. Lorne is in Scotland. <laughs> Good to know. So like all of England. Yeah. Well, I say I checked. It was mentioned in one of the articles that I read while translating this. Fair enough. Those who are not under your command, y'all beat and bind. Unless y'all atone for that wrong, y'all will be bound in fire. Lo, hear the worms in my belly. They boil and twist. Lo, hear the tie of the shroud in which I was wound. Herein was I wound certainly in the world when I was most highly honored. My carcass was full comely to kiss. Let me explain that one. Ooh, I like this. The word that I've translated as carcass is usually means corpse, but can be used to mean living body, but in a derogatory way, like in, in a way that makes it clear that it's lesser than the immortal soul or something. Oh, the, and so the best way I could figure out to render that into modern English was to use the term carcass. But we have created you masters wrongly that now you will not commemorate us with a mass. I like that because that's saying like, hey, we're your fathers slash forefathers. We created you and we're mad about it. And we're going to like, we're going to be undead. Like, we're not going to die mad about it. We're going to come back 
Yeah. Because you didn't honor us properly in death. That other body began a full ferocious outcry. This is the second one. Look on my bones that are black and bare. For while we dwelt in this world, we were held in honor. We had our wife at our will, which is a weird thing to say in this context, but that's what it says. And wealth to spend. Think this not a marvel, but learn from me fear. Though y'all be ever so fair, thus shall y'all fare. As in, you'll be dead. Right. And if y'all believe in Christ and learn his lore, leave fleshly desires and have not faith in that clay. As in, fleshly clay like the body. For wherever should y'all believe in it, it lies. It leads y'all astray by lies. When you are the greatest of all and highest, when you depart out of this world, it makes known all your wild works. That last speech, which seems kind of tangled, Mm -hmm. not only do you need to abandon fleshly desires, but you need to accept that the fleshly body is deceptive and it has impulses that you should not heed. Like, you can't trust it. That makes sense. So... This is, again, sort of a callback to the biblical understanding that the flesh is corrupt and the soul is incorruptible. Interesting, considering that I suppose these souls are saying this from corrupted flesh. Well, presumably that's part of their punishment. Interesting. That they have to remain in the corrupted flesh. Then spoke the last loathsome one with loins full lean, with each leg as if a leek were wrapped in linen. Make me your mirror, my joys are small. While I was a man upon the earth, mine were sinful deeds. I thought it a splendid thing to persecute bondmen. For that I was hated among servants and villagers, but I thought myself ever a king of high society. Now there is no knave under Christ who will bow to me. Who will bow to me, who will come to me, unless he be mad or a simpleton. Act so that y'all may not dread judgment. We have no longer time to speak to y'all, but turn yourselves from trifles at once. There's a lot of implications here that these three dead bodies have been wandering around the countryside. Yeah. Yeah. How else would they know that no one will bow to them? Like, they're just out there, apparently. Like, maybe this is, like, their purgatorial punishment. Ooh, that's spooky. But again, we have this biblical, like, hey, turn away from sinning. Y'all are shitty kings. Do better. Now that these ghosts were ready, they glided to the grave. Then began these men to gladden at once. They directed themselves to the right way, and quickly they rode. The knights could read the red rays of day. They never more acted oppressively at all. I have a note here. The line uses the idiom, be hue ne be hide, which means not at all. Like, if you look up hue in the Middle English Dictionary, one of the, like, results is this phrase, saying, like, be hue, ne be hide, means not at all. However, this line can be and has been also translated literally in a way that works in context. Uh, a note in the Teams edition lays out the options very well, where it says, hue can also mean a servant, while a hide is the measure of land needed to support a household. So it mm. could be read as the king's no longer oppressing the agricultural classes, as the final apparition described. Interesting. Or... The terms hue as in color and hide as in skin were also current in the Middle Mm -hmm. English period, so the line can be read as the kings no longer setting store by outward appearance after their encounter with the decaying figures of the dead. And it kind of means Mm -hmm. all three, because all three meanings are present. Like, it's it's a pun. Right, I would argue that it absolutely means all three. It has to mean all three. And this is what gets me sometimes about 
some of these authors who we talked about earlier who are so invested in creating an argument for their understanding of a text, they forget that medieval individuals were just as witty as we are and play with words just as much as we do. So my argument would be all three meanings are present and this was a deliberate action on the poet's part. I would agree with that. Anyway, so they never more acted oppressively at all, plus those other meanings, but yes. ever after had a humbler heart. And they who had been wicked were mindful of the reward. I think that's the uh, heavenly reward. Yep. And through the mercy of God, a monastery they made. This is something that always seems kind of silly when we hear the when we get the medieval text. They're like, and they atoned, and they made a made a church or something, because that's always what they do. Like, or they do, or they give yeah. to a, a chapel, or they or they'll become monks and yeah. nuns themselves. Yeah, or they'll leave everything to a chantery so that people will sing mm -hmm. masses for them after their death. And I'm like. Have you considered maybe instead of using your money to just give to the church, you could try and improve the material lives of your subjects and thus become mm -hmm. a better king that way? Mm -hmm. But I guess that doesn't count because it's secular and worldly. I mean, I would say there's sort of a yes and here. Like a lot of it is is built up into, oh, I can gain honor, prestige, etc., etc by putting this money into the church, but also the church was responsible for accepting and then divvying, dividing alms throughout the community. So theoretically, if the church acted in good faith, which is <sighs> the church is made up of people, people are sinful, blah, 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 you get the idea. But anyway, it makes sense that the king would donate to the church both for personal use and personal gain, as well as to be of benefit to his community. And I think there's also something to be said for the idea that there wasn't a cultural concept of like the king or someone of stature going around and being like, here you go, here's some bread for the week, or here you go, here's some, you know, a donation of whatever. Mm -hmm. Like the cultural barriers were so strict that I think that would have been almost inconceivable. Well, they could lighten up on taxes or something. Well, yeah, of course. I'm not... I By no means am I trying to be an apologist <laughs> for, for kings or for the medieval Catholic Church. Absolutely not. Or for the medieval Protestant, Lutheran, etc., etc. church at all, for that matter. But there is a cultural understanding there that is worth picking at, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm just... I find it... In this particular era, I'm not sure how well you can sell the idea of, like, giving to the church means giving to the people, because this is the time when, oh, no. like, popes were covered in jewels and shit. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the and medieval peasants were highly aware of this as well. They knew where that money was going. Yeah. They knew that they were never going to see it. Right. And, like, I, I have to assume that your, your lords and your kings could improve your material conditions, because if they don't have the power to do that, how do they have the power to oppress you? Like, Yep. Yeah, that too. If you have the power to screw over the peasants, you must also have the power to help the peasants, even if that's just by not screwing them over anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And also, to come back to this idea that everybody at the end of these stories, or at least nobles, always become part of monasteries or donate or blah, blah, blah. A lot of that is also, we need to have a Christian moral at the end of this. Yeah, that's true. This this was written by a monk. Right. So there's also some uh, self-promotion going on here. Yeah. Shameless plugs, if you will. 
Yeah, yeah, there really is. That's... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, there's just a few more lines left. A monastery they made with a mass for meeting the men on the moss. Which I think is just an extra alliterative way to say, like, they put the monastery in the same place where they met the dead men. And they had a mass yeah, there. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Like, oh, we're going to honor yeah. the dead the dead people who scared the shit out of us. And on the wall, this story was written. Which, of course, is a reference to the fact that this was a very popular theme for frescoes and stuff. Like, you'd see it on the walls of churches all throughout Western Europe. As you'd see, like, the three That's living men really and the three cool. dead men standing next to each other and having their conversation. That means that this ed- edition, copy, translation, whatever this was pulled from had already been popularly known and depicted for probably at least a couple decades. I'm pretty sure that this is actually quite late in the tradition because it started on the continent and this is an English version. Yeah, so it had to be. Yeah, so it it had already been like shuffling around for a while before we got this version that I can actually read. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very cool. I like that. And it ends with, Too few will believe this, alas. Our Lord deliver us from loss. Amen. Amen. There we go. See, there was a moment when you read about the three kings who oppressed no more. I was thinking to myself, oh, that's all it took. And then after a moment, I sort of realized, you know, if if I saw three corpses, maybe who I recognized... I'd be scared pretty straight, too. Yeah, like, I, f- I feel like I would be willing to make all kinds of life changes if a rotting corpse came up to me and said, like, you need to change what you're doing. I'd be like, whatever you say, dude. Yeah, oh, like, absolutely. This is shaking my belief in how the world works, so I need to understand what's going on now. See, you know what, Mac? We should have saved this one for Christmas, because this is just a Christmas story. Oh my god, it is a, it is a Christmas story. <laughs> it's Scrooge. It is, essentially. Like, we're not doing time travel. We're not going, you know, Christmas past and Christmas future and all that. But we we also kind of are because they did say, like, hey, we're your ancestors. You guys didn't honor us. Look at what's going to happen to you in the future mm-hmm. if you don't, you know, fix yourselves up. Yeah, that's why. There we go. <laughs> all right. I'm going to move on to the next one. All right. So I have a number of excerpts from this next source. Uh, that one we just did is one of the longest ones we had. Most of these are pretty short. Caesarius of Heisterbach was a Cistercian prior in 13... What? I'm sorry, who? Caesarius of Heisterbach. And yes, it's spelled just like if you stuck a Latin ending onto Caesar. I mean, it's just the genitive of Caesar. Man, we're we're, we're lacking on names, man. <laughs> These days, come on. We're the Heisterbach Constantines. Heisterbach is still a real place, so you can't, you can't blame them too much for that. Well, right, but like, where's the Caesarises and, and, and the Constantines and... Augustuses and... Oh, I thought you were criticizing Cesarius's name. No, you think there need to be more Cesarius's. I want more dramatic names. <laughs> That's fair. I've always thought we don't use, like, mythology enough in our naming practices no. anymore. I mean, I guess we, we use the Bible, don't. which is technically mythology, but I mean, like, pagan mythology. Pagan mythology, yeah. I think it, it also depends on where you're from, because in Iceland still, like, there's a lot of Thorir's and... That's true. You know, it just depends. Depends on where you are. But yeah, like, come on. Like, screw this, like, Stephanie, Kyle, John stuff. Like, give me some really good, interesting names that I have to chew on for a little while. Yeah. No offense is meant to any Stephanies, Kyles, or Johns that may be listening. Maybe that way, like, Americans would actually try and pronounce other names correctly. 
That would be nice. Also, you know, everyone wants unique names for their kids, but they just use normal names and spell them weird. Like, instead, consider, like, don't name your daughter Kaylee with three Gs. Name her Medusa. That'll stick out. For real, right? Or, like, Cleopatra. Because then, like, if she doesn't like it, she can go by Cleo. She could go by Pat. Like, there's a lot of options here. Also, do you know how many times I've been called Zoe? That's strange, because you've got that diuresis over the E, don't you? Well, I have to Or is to that just it. something my autocorrect does? No, it's something that I, I did in university because people misnamed me so many times. I was like, if I don't put the dots over the E, no one's going to pronounce it. So I had to spell it the Dutch way instead of the Greek way. Uh-huh. And I, no one did it in Europe. Everyone does it in the States. Well, Zoe's not even an uncommon name. I don't know why, how pe- why people are getting that wrong. Because they put the Y on it in oh, America. I see. Yeah. Anyway, enough about me complaining. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Cesarus. Or- yeah. Yeah. So he was a Cistercian prior in 13th century Germany who wrote a book called The Dialogue on Miracles, which is a massive collection of several hundred exempla in the form of a dialogue between a monk and a novice. That's really cool. An exemplum is, is a morality tale that you can throw into sermons and stuff. This book is sometimes credited with introducing Titavilius, the typo demon. <laughs> nice. I think that's a bit of a stretch, because other than creeping around monasteries and collecting bad things in a sack, Caesarius's unnamed demon doesn't have much in common with Titavilius. Okay. I don't know. We'll, we'll do an episode on Titavilius at some point. We absolutely should. The Dialogue on Miracles is also the source for a quotation I've brought out before. It's where we hear the story from the Albigensian Crusade, wherein the commander says, kill them all and let God sort them out. That's from this text? The commander in question was a Cistercian abbot. So this is someone from his same order who lived at that time. So like, yeah, that's where, that's who wrote it down. Interesting. I always thought that must have been like from a letter or a report. I didn't realize it was from an exemplar. Well, I mean, technically, I think it was from... An order given verbally, but... <laughs> well, right. But if, if we are to trust the the, the reporting uh, practices, because it's, it's just something he throws into, like, a story about the Albigensian Crusade. Like, it's not part of the moral or anything. He's just like, yeah, this guy said that. Anyway, moving on. Just gonna leave that one there. All right. However, we're not focusing on either of those stories today, because the 11th and 12th books of the Dialogue on Miracles are all stories about, respectively, the dying and the dead. So I picked out a few of those to read you. I have them spread out throughout my list so they don't get too repetitive. I'm Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to do them all at once. This Sounds is a good. short one. A certain churchman had so excellent and sweet a voice that it was thought a delight to listen to it. One day, a man of religion, coming and hearing the sweetness of that harp, said, That is not the voice of a man, but of a devil. Moreover, to the astonishment of all, he adjured the devil, and he, the devil, came out of him, the man, Overuse of pronouns in that sentence, I probably should clarify. The body at once collapsing and becoming putrid. Then all knew that body had long been abused by the devil. Oh, wow. Yeah, so apparently this this guy who had a great voice was actually just a devil riding around in a corpse who, uh, I guess, had a great singing voice for some reason. And we couldn't just let him be? He's not harming anybody. Like, if he was cursing people with his singing, like, if he was doing the fairy thing where you dance for a hundred years, I would get it, but... I mean, usually I'm the one who defends, like, leaving devils alone. <laughs> I feel like it's weird <laughs> to come from someone who's actually Christian. Well, I mean, I don't see how there was any proof that this was actually a devil, because in biblical theology, 
devils are harming people. True. But, you know, all right. Okay. I mean, he it was he was exorcised, so it was something. It was definitely something. That's that's really really interesting. Also, 10 out of 10 want to see this in a D&D game. I know, right? It would be just that's an excellent NPC to just throw in there. <laughs> I didn't even think about that as an NPC. I was just thinking like, yeah, when you like charm person or something, the devil flies out of somebody and their corpse just like falls to the ground. Oh, yeah, that's also wild. I like that too. You know, if you cast the right thing, or maybe if you cast a spell on a devil at all, it, like, flies out of the person. That would be an interesting quest. Yeah. If, if like, oh, there's been local grave robbings, but they, like, haven't taken anything, but the body's gone. We don't know what's going on. It would also be a great way to add in exorcism to D&D more, which I think it, I think people are overlooking. Oh, yeah, 100%. What's the phrase? Hmm, anyway. People are sleeping on exorcism. There we go. Drop that hot lingo that the kids are using. Gen Z. (laughs) We're both too old for this. Anyway, we'll come back to that for our D&D segment. But that's a hell of a story. Anyway. Right, anyway. So is is there a moral to this? Well, there's a little exchange between the novice and the monk at the end, but I don't think it actually helps at all. Oh, okay. All right, so the novice says, I have no doubt that the devils in hell do exceedingly torture the souls of those whose bodies they abuse in life. And the monk says, You are right. Let us now return to the torments of tyrants as the opportunity has been offered. And then he tells a different story, which I'm not, (laughs) which I don't have here. Oh my gosh. I mean, straightforward, but that does nothing for the context of the tale. Yeah, I really don't know what moral you're supposed to draw from this other than like, if one of the people in your choir has too good a voice, he might be a demon. Yeah. Or... For me, this brings up a lot of metaphysical questions and just physical questions about how long this person has been alive, or is the devil just residing in the body and the soul isn't there? Or like, are you coexisting with the devil and your soul is in there? Like, how does that work? Does your soul go to hell and then the devil embodies your physical form? Yeah, I was assuming that the soul was gone. Because since the body rotted so quickly, that implies the person is dead, which I assume means the soul is somewhere else. Right. But I guess that's not an automatic assumption. Like, you can't prove that scientifically. Exactly. What came to mind for me was, oh, this demon has been inhabiting this body for so long that the person in it was either dead when the demon like picked it or the person had died and either gone, you know, to whatever afterlife they ended up in. And then the demon just kept the body going. Yeah. I kind of like the idea of like, because maybe the demon doesn't actually know how to keep a human alive. At some point, the the, the body dies and the demon doesn't even realize and just keeps going. I like that. That's real spooky. It's like, oh, right. Food. Right. What are the daily habits of this demon? Like, what if somebody in your village just doesn't eat? They don't sleep. You see them at weird hours. They don't really go to church. Like, "Mm, what's going on there, bud? That would also be like a good like mystery module is someone's acting weird. And it turns out that like they've been possessed by a demon and they died because the demon isn't keeping isn't like taking proper care of the body. But no one noticed because the, the demon's also keeping the body from rotting. And see, what if your players figure this out and then they have a moral quandary on their hands of like, yeah, but this guy's one, not doing any or that much harm and also yeah, he's, he's just got a wife creepy. and kid. 
Ooh. Yeah. What if, like, what if he's got a family and you're like, oh, well, your husband's technically a devil. If we exercise him, all you've got is a corpse. I'm sorry. Try to make him stand in a grave first just to save us the trouble. Yeah, for real. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? I feel like that's a, an interesting mystery and potential moral problem. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's all right. We need to we need to put a pin on a pin in that as a possible like D&D adventure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. So this next story is both the oldest one in the collection I have here and the only one from outside of Western Europe. Although it is apparently set in Western Europe, so do with that as you will. This is from that fuzzy period, which is, depending on how you look at it, either late antique or early medieval. Okay. At this time, the Western Roman Empire had fallen, but the Eastern Roman Empire still kind of thought that might be just a temporary setback and they were going to reconquer the West any year now. Mm-hmm. Like there was like a mm-hmm. century or two where, where they hadn't, it hadn't really sunk in that like, no, that era of history is done. And that was, for those of you looking for kind of a period, if you want to dig into that, that would generally be Byzantines. Yes. And this is, in fact, a Byzantine text. Ah, that makes sense. Because when we say, like, Eastern Roman Empire, a lot of people don't know what that means. That's referring to the Byzantines. Yeah, right. They Byzantine is, let's drop a vocabulary word here. Byzantine <laughs> is an exonym, meaning it is a word that a group is called by outsiders, but not by themselves. Mm-hmm. They just called themselves Romans. Romans, exactly. Yep. All right. So our Byzantine text. Yeah. So the text I'm about to read from is a contemporary account of Emperor Justinian's attempts to do exactly what I just said, reconquer the Western Roman Empire. This is from The Gothic Wars by Procopius. We're going to talk more about Procopius in the future because he's the author of the next book I want to do an extended series on. But all you need to know right now is that he's a court historian who, while recording his boss's military campaigns, decided to take a bit of a tangent to talk about a legend he once heard in the barbarous lands of the West. And this is how that goes. Oh, and I'm pretty sure that the setting he's about to describe is a misunderstanding of Hadrian's Wall. Oh, very exciting. Hadrian's Wall is also sort of a, um, a liminal space. Yes, it is. Like, it's a very strange, there's possibly giants and mystical things beyond the wall. We don't really go there, that sort of thing. So that's really cool. That makes sense. This makes sense to me. And Scotsmen who are like, they're probably fine, but they might not want you coming over their wall. Mm -hmm. And Celts. Celts. Anyway, the story goes. Now in this island of Britia, the men of ancient times built a long wall, cutting off a large part of it and the climate and the soil and everything else is not alike on the two sides of it. For to the east of the wall, this is the part where I think he got it wrong, because the wall is going the wrong way in this story. Because it cuts north from south The north and the south, yeah. To the east of the wall, there is a salubrious air, changing with the seasons, being moderately warm in summer and cool in winter, and many people dwell there, living in the same fashion as other men, and the trees abound with fruits which ripen at the fitting season, and the corn lands flourish as abundantly as any. Furthermore, the land seems to display a genuine pride in an abundance of springs of water. But on the west side, west side, everything is the reverse of this, so that it is actually impossible for a man to survive there even a half hour. But countless snakes and serpents and every other kind of wild creature occupy this area as their own. Well, some some people would just call those the English. <laughs> <laughs> Like, who are we talking about here? Sassanax. (laughs) 
And strangest of all, the inhabitants say that if any man crosses this wall and goes to the other side, he dies straight away, being quite unable to support the pestilential air of that region. And wild animals likewise which go there are instantly met and taken by death. Except for serpents, apparently. Who might be- Well, they're of the devil. Yeah, fair. They're of the devil. They don't- the Yeah, they don't the count. English. I mean, <laughs> take your pick. <laughs> All right, we gotta stop that, because we might have English listeners. Oh, we definitely do have English listeners, and I love them dearly. Yeah, sorry, But I also, I also did my degree in Ireland, so- fair. And I'm an American, anyway. I'm gonna stop, stop that one right now. <laughs> Since I have reached this point in the history, it is necessary for me to record a story which bears a very close resemblance to mythology, a story which did not indeed seem to me at all trustworthy, although it was constantly being published, I think that means published verbally, not like in a peer-reviewed journal. Right, it was being talked about and told. Yeah. It was a strange translation choice, because like, this guy's translating from Greek, like he could have picked any other verb. It was constantly being published by countless persons who maintained that they had done the thing with their own hands and had heard the words with their own ears, and yet it cannot be altogether passed over, lest, in writing an account of the island of Britia, I gain a lasting reputation for ignorance of what takes place there. They say, then, that the souls of men who die are always conveyed to this place, and as to the manner in which this is done, I shall presently explain having many a time heard the people there most earnestly describe it, though I have come to the conclusion that the tales they tell are to be attributed to some power of dreams. Along the coast of the ocean which lies opposite the island of Britia, there are numerous villages. These are inhabited by men who fish with nets or till the soil or carry on a sea trade with this island, being in other respects subject to the Franks, but never making them any payment of tribute, that burden having been remitted to them from ancient times on account, as they say, of a certain service, which will here be described by me." I'm thinking that like a group of people on the coast who are technically under the domain of the Franks but have a connection to the Isle of quote Britia unquote, I think we're talking about Brittany. So I'm pretty sure that, that this is a story that he's telling about the Bretons. Okay, 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 okay. I'm I'm piecing this together. That makes sense. But they're okay. But they're on the other side of Hadrian's Wall. Well, the the wall is on Britia, but now he's talking about people on the mainland who visit. Britia. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yes, this makes this makes sense. Yeah, that would be the the Bretons. Yeah, the men of this place say that the conduct of souls is laid upon them in turn. So the men who on the following night must go to do this work, relieving others in the service, as soon as darkness comes on, retire to their own houses and sleep, awaiting him who is to assemble them for the enterprise. And at a late hour of the night they are conscious of a knocking at their doors, and hear an indistinct voice calling them together for their task. And they with no hesitation rise from their beds and walk to the shore, not understanding what necessity leads them to do this, but compelled nevertheless. There they see skiffs in readiness, with no man at all in them, not their own skiffs, however, but a different kind, in which they embark and lay hold of the oars. And they are aware that the boats are burdened with a large number of passengers, and are wet by the waves to the edge of the planks and the oarlocks, having not so much as one finger's breadth above the water. They themselves, however, see no one. So they're rowing boats that appear empty, but are as heavy as if they were packed with people. Wow, I like this. So this is some sort of like dream walking sort of thing. Yeah, like supposedly this is something that everyone in this region has to take turns doing. And like someone just comes up and calls them in the middle of the night and is like, okay, you have to come row the boats tonight. It's your turn. 
Wow. That's cool. And it goes on. Spooky, terrifying, but cool. They themselves, however, see no one, but after rowing a single hour, they put in at Britia. And yet when they make the voyage in their own skiffs, not using sails but rowing, they with difficulty make this passage in a night and a day. So the boats also are going supernaturally fast. Yes. Then when they have reached the island and have been relieved of their burden, they depart with all speed, their boats now becoming suddenly light and rising above the waves, for they sink no further in the water than the keel itself. And they, for their part, neither see any man either sitting in the boat with them or departing from the boat, but they say that they hear a kind of voice from the island, which seems to make announcement to those who take the souls in charge, as each name is called the passengers who have come over with them telling over the positions of honor which they formerly held, and calling out their father's names with their own. And if women also happen to be among those who have been ferried, they likewise utter the names of the men to whom they were married in life. This, then, is what the men of this country say takes place, but I shall return to the previous narrative. Wow, that's packed. Yeah, I think that's a great piece of world building. Yeah. It's like if Charon, the ferryman of the dead, decided to outsource. Yeah, for real. That's very interesting. That's almost like um, like Mists of Avalon, you know, vibes where you're called to do something and, and you end up in this weird other world. I have still never read Mists of Avalon. I haven't either, but I've gotten good vibes off of it. It's on the list. Okay. It's a little bit reminiscent of Irish Ektra, like okay. those journey stories where a lot of times they go through mists on a sea journey, arrive in a strange different land, and then come back. Mm -hmm. So that's that's really interesting, which makes sense to me, because at that point, the Bretons would have been, like, they would have mixed with the Celts. Well, the Bre so Bretons been, are Celtic. They are, yeah. They that's are, why it's yeah. called Brittany. It's Little Britain. They, they're they're the ones who fled the Anglo-Saxons. Celtic. Yep. Interesting. Huh. I like that they don't see the dead either. Yeah. Like, they just know they're there because of the weight of the boat. Yeah. And somebody is, like, proclaiming them. Yeah. Interesting. That's got to be a wild job to have. It's giving me, um, Sabriel vibes. Yeah, because they're, uh, psychopomps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Also Not much boat. to say there, I don't think. No, it's just good. Yeah, it's just, just fun. All right. There's another one. This is another one where I have multiple excerpts and I've spread them out a bit. Our source here is William of Newburgh, a canon at a Yorkshire priory in the 12th century. He wrote a history that covers the first century and a bit after the Norman Conquest. It starts at 1066 and goes up to what to William was the present day. The history often drifts into folklore, though, as William was apparently perfectly happy to also just include stories he heard that seemed interesting. <laughs> it's a great read, and I fully intend to come back to it several times outside of Halloween episodes. Like, this might be, like alongside the Gesta Romanorum as something I just pull out every so often. Perfect. Love it. But for now, we're just going to hear about the undead. All right. <clears throat> it would not be easy to believe that the corpses of the dead should sally, I know not by what agency, from their graves and should wander about to the terror or destruction of the living and again return to the tomb, which of its own accord spontaneously opened to receive them, did not frequent examples occurring in our own times suffice to establish this fact, to the truth of which there is abundant testimony. It would be strange if such things should have happened formerly, since we can find no evidence of them in the works of ancient authors whose vast labor it was to commit to writing every occurrence worthy of memory. 
For if they never neglected to register even events of moderate interest, how could they have suppressed a fact at once so amazing and horrible, supposing it to have happened in their day? So he's basically saying, like, hey, there's been a weird uptick in yeah. dead people coming back. Just hope you're aware. This is a new trend. <laughs> Yeah, like, that's his only conclusion, is he's like, I've heard this from so many people that I have to assume it's true, but it's never mentioned in any of the ancient texts. I think this is a new thing, and maybe we should be worried. Incredible. 10 out of 10 take. Moreover, were I to write down all the instances of this kind which I have ascertained to have befallen in our times, ascertained, I think is the word I was looking for there, the undertaking would be beyond measure laborious and troublesome. So I will fain add two more only, and these of recent occurrence, to those I have already narrated, and insert them in our history as occasion offers as a warning to posterity. Good to know. I'll keep an eye out. A few years ago, the chaplain of a certain illustrious lady, casting off mortality, was consigned to the tomb in that noble monastery which is called Melrose. This man, having little respect for the sacred order to which he belonged, was excessively secular in his pursuits, and, what especially blackens his reputation as a minister of the Holy Sacrament, so addicted to the vanity of the chase as to be designated by many by the infamous title of Hundeprest, or the Dog Priest. Oh, wow. Not because he's like a dog, because he goes hunting with dogs. Oh, I took that wrong. What chase were you thinking of? I was thinking of it in the, like, sexual, like, pursuit of women. Oh, I'm pretty sure he's talking about hunting because the dogs, but I mean- That maybe. makes more sense, because I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense, because he would have, you know, gone doggy style. <laughs> <laughs> I went way off there. That makes more sense. He liked hunting. Okay. Let's go with that one. And this occupation, during his lifetime, was either laughed at by men, or considered in a worldly view. But after his death, as the event showed, the guiltiness of it was brought to light. For, issuing from the grave at nighttime, he was prevented by the meritorious resistance of its holy inmates from injuring or terrifying anyone within the monastery itself, whereupon he wandered beyond the walls, and hovered chiefly, with loud groans and horrible murmurs, and this might be supporting your interpretation, around the bedchamber of his former mistress. Oof. Okay, hang on. Take a step back, and the other dead bodies are keeping him from doing what? Oh no, not the other dead bodies. He's The cemetery he's buried in, or the graveyard, I guess, technically, is attached to the monastery. But he can't go ah. into the monastery because the people in the monastery are too holy. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. Again, like... The dead cannot come onto holy ground. Yeah, yeah. the inmates like that, of the monastery, rise. not the inmates of the graves, I think. Okay, I was really confused. I was like, well, okay, first of all, why is he in a mass grave, too? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she, the mistress, after this had frequently occurred, becoming exceedingly terrified, revealed her fears or danger to one of the friars who visited her about the business of the monastery, demanding with tears that prayers more earnest than usual should be poured out to the Lord in her behalf as for one in agony. With whose anxiety the friar, for she appeared deserving of the best endeavors on the part of the holy convent of that place by her frequent donations to it. It's like, oh yeah, you pay us, of course we'll help you. Right, duh. She appears deserving. I like how there's no actual, like, notion of her holiness, whether or not she's actually devout. It's just about how much money she provides. Right. And also, like, it seems like kind of a d move to, like, a, like, 
oh, some people are not deserving of being helped when they're being terrorized by dead bodies. Yeah, for real. I think everyone's deserving of help in that scenario. 100%. Anyway, the friar, quote, piously and justly sympathized. (laughs) Sure. And promised a speedy remedy through the mercy of the Most High Provider for all. Thereupon, returning to the monastery, he obtained the companionship of another friar of equally determined spirit, and two powerful young men, whom he intended with constant vigilance to keep guard over the cemetery where that miserable priest lay buried. You're making a face. I am making a face. You know why people have a hard time determining whether, like, there's homoeroticism in medieval texts? It's because there are so many phrases that are used simultaneously for companionship. Like, what was the phrase? He obtained the companionship of another friar? If you told me that this dead guy took the companionship of his mistress, I would immediately understand that to mean sex. That's a good point. I'm not sure if that's in the medieval texts or in, like, the uh, older translations, though, because a lot of, like, 18th and... uh, or a lot of, like, 19th century texts have those same kind of phrases where they have, like, very... What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Homosocial male-male relationships. Your gentleman friend? Yeah. Which is very confusing because probably some of them were gay, but there's no way to know which because they all talk like that. Exactly. Anyway, anyway, another argument for why we need new translations. So he got the two biggest, hunkiest, strongest monks. Yep. Plus another friar. The cemetery. So he's got, yeah, four people all at once and they're going to keep guard over the cemetery. So his first reaction is I'm going to get my posse and I'm going to beat up the ghost. Okay, but also consider that he's not even in the cemetery. Well, I think he comes back he's... each night. Oh, okay. Like he's not wandering around during the sense. day. He goes back in the grave. That makes sense. See, I, I thought he was like not even in the cemetery because he was such a bad chaplain. That would also make sense. But anyway, anyway, yes. I mean, frankly, I think one of the most impressive like miracles of this particular supernatural occurrence is how all that dirt just moves out of the way to let them out of their graves every night. True. True. Anywho, these four, therefore, furnished with arms and animated with courage, passed the night in that place, safe in the assistance which each afforded to the other. Midnight had now passed by, and no monster appeared, upon which it came to pass that three of the party, leaving him only who had sought their company on the spot, departed into the nearest house, for the purpose, as they averred, of warming themselves, for the night was cold. So, like, the the guys he brought along with him are, it's past midnight, and they're like, there's no ghost. Uh, It's cold out here. I'm going in. Done. Right. Yeah. I mean, not gonna lie, kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely tracks. It's like, uh, brother Paul, you're full of shit. Yeah, like, is this this a bit? Am I being pranked? Yeah, is this a prank? (laughs) As soon as this man was left alone in this place, the devil, I'm, I'm not sure if that means, like, the devil as in, like, the rascally ghost critter or like if there's a devil (laughs) possessing the corpse i'm gonna go with like the corpse creature the devil imagining that he had found the right moment for breaking his courage sorry there's a breaking no i got that bit for like he's he's trying to frighten the friar but the next right adverb is a little weird incontinently roused up his own chosen vessel (laughs) oh that's a weird phrasing yeah incontinently incontinently 
I mean, I guess that makes sense for a dead guy, but, uh... Like, I know that's not what that meant at the time this translation was made, but it sounds weird now. Future Mac here, listening back to this during editing. It honestly doesn't make that much more sense with the actual definition of incontinent, i.e. lacking self-restraint. Like, he waited till the best opportunity. Like, how is this lacking self-restraint? I don't know. I'm just not sure about some of this translator's choices, y'all. It's, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Who appeared to have reposed longer than usual. Having beheld this from afar, he grew stiff with terror by reason of his being alone. I think we're uh, the friar again now. Yes. But soon recovering his courage, and no place of refuge being at hand, he valiantly withstood the onset of the fiend who came rushing upon him with a terrible noise, and he struck the axe which he wielded in his hand deep into his body. Upon receiving this wound, the monster groaned aloud, and turning his back, fled with a rapidity, that's a hard word, rapidity, mm-hmm. not at all inferior to that which he had advanced. I don't know if this, like, Excessive ornateness of words is the Latin or the translation, but like, seriously. I mean, it's a twine toss. <laughs> yeah, it's a what? It's a. <laughs> it's a coin toss. I I can do English. <laughs> Talk about ornateness of words. <laughs> While the admirable man urged his flying foe from behind and compelled him to seek his own tomb again which opening of its own accord and receiving its guests from the advance of the pursuer immediately appeared to close again with the same facility. In the meantime, they who, impatient of the coldness of the night, had retreated to the fire ran up, although somewhat too late, and having heard what had happened, rendered needful assistance in digging up and removing from the midst of the tomb the accursed corpse at the earliest dawn. When they had divested it of the clay cast forth with it, they found the huge wound it had received, and a great quantity of gore which had flowed from it in the sepulchre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Dead bodies don't usually bleed. At least not very Depends much. Depends on how on how recently dead they are. To be to be fair, well, it's several like days gore. at it least. It could be like his guts, you know. Yeah, fair. Popping out. Because they, you know, they, they do the whole bloating thing. It's like dead whales on the beach, they blow up. That's true. I mean, the dead whales exploding is not always a natural phenomenon. Sometimes we just do that. <laughs> Fair. It's true. There's one in like, there was one in like, uh, I forget if it was Florida or California or something where they're like, we can't wait for this whale to like clear the, the beach on its own. And it's too hard to drag it back it. into the water or like dispose of it properly. So we're just going to blow it up. Oregon, 1970. That's dumb. They I mean, like when they, when their own natural gases, you know, make them expand. That's what I mean. Well, I mean, that also happens, but at least once anyway. it has been artificially encouraged. That's weird. Okay. Uh, and so having carried it away beyond the walls of the monastery and burnt it, they scattered the ashes to the winds. These things I have explained in a simple narration. No, you haven't. As I myself heard them <laughs> recounted by religious men. Interesting. I think if I come back to this for more, I might start summarizing. I might like writing summaries of these things before I just read them. Because like I did not realize how excessive it was until I was reading it out loud. That's fair. To be fair, it's much easier to read silently to yourself than it is to do it out loud. Okay, so this is is a clerical class slash quest opportunity I want. Like, where's my party of monks? Like, but like, you know, like cleric monks? Mm Mm-hmm. 
tradi- not not like the key monks in 5e. Right. Or like maybe key monks, sure, but like in western habit and not like the Shaolin monks, you know, who go around beating up the undead. That's what I want. I feel like you could use a lot of similar stats and just like reskin the key monks into like undead pugilist. Undead pugilist, 10 out of t- subclass. Instead of having like key and stuff they they just they just have the same like access to supernatural abilities that cleric yeah there you go they just use it to get things i like that that's good okay so this was our first like bad undead was i mean we had like the demons but that was like the demon the undead like the dead part was still oh yeah just dead yeah that's true this is this is that this is the first like just undead person who was bad although he may have also been possessed by a demon they kind of implied that when they called him a little bit a little bit. But yeah. Interesting. Undead are like the Fae. You don't really know what you're going to get until you encounter one. Could be positive, could be negative. You're going to be scared either way. Anyway, William of Newburgh said that he had two stories for us, so <gasps> here's the, the other, other one. Another event, also not unlike this, but more pernicious in its effects, happened at the castle which is called Anantis. As I have heard from an aged monk who lived in honor and authority in those parts, and who related this event as having occurred in his own presence. He's like, no, my friend was there, That's man. amazing. He saw it. I want to hear an old monk tell me a story firsthand that he was there for. Like a ghost story like that. Mm-hmm. A certain man of evil conduct, fleeing through fear of his enemies or the law out of the province of York to the lord of the before-named castle, took up his abode there, and having cast upon a service befitting his humor, labored hard to increase rather than correct his own evil propensities. He married a wife to his own ruin. Wow. Yeah, I feel like there's more to it than that, but just inc- just stopping there. <laughs> I mean, he was already an evil man, so hopefully she was a woman of some good repute. Let's find out. To his own ruin, indeed, as it afterwards appeared. For hearing certain rumors respecting her, he was vexed with the spirit of jealousy. Maybe not, all right. Anxious to ascertain the truth of these reports, he pretended to be going on a journey from which he would not turn for some days. But coming back in the evening, he was privily introduced into his bedroom by a maidservant who was in the secret. What? She's like in on it. A maidservant who was in She's the secret? She's in on okay, it, yeah. yeah. So he's like, hey. Gotcha. Mary, I'm going away, but I'm actually going to come back and you can't tell my wife. Like, you have to, like, sneakily get me into my room because I want to see if she's cheating. All right. Yeah, that makes it... Adding that preposition makes makes that phrase make a lot more sense. And lay hidden on a beam overhanging his wife's chamber so that he might prove with his own eyes if anything were done in the dishonor of his marriage. <laughs> he's like, so, yeah, he's like dangling from the rafters. <laughs> Trying to catch her in the act. I feel like that's the worst place to be because presumably, like, one or the other of them is going to be on the bed He's going to lie down? Up. Yeah. Like, he's not in the closet or something, like, peeking through. Right. No, he's like, you know what? I'm going to get a like, front row seat to this show. Yeah, like, the second one of them lies down, they're going to be like, oh, there's <laughs> a man in the rafters. Damn, okay. All right. Like, I mean, I guess there are some positions where you don't have to. Maybe he's just assuming. Maybe he knows those are her favorites. Whatever his plan is, I'm excited to see how this plays out. I know my wife prefers <laughs> doggy style. She'll never look up. <sighs> She's with that f***ing chaplain again. Who <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, anyway. Thereupon, beholding his wife in the act of fornication, we're just skipping the, like, probably several hours he spent lying there. 
beholding his wife in the act of fornication with a young man of the neighborhood, and in his indignation forgetful of his purpose, he fell and was dashed heavily to the ground near where they were lying. He forgot. I think he forgot, like, uh, that he was, he had his balance. Like, I think that's what he, he was so distracted by the, like, scene that he forgot what he was about. Okay, that makes more sense, because I was like, what, he was into it? Like, what? (laughs) What do you mean he forgot? Okay, yeah, he, he, like, forgot to keep his grip because he was so upset. Okay. Yeah. The adulterer himself leaped up and escaped. I'm pretty sure the wife is the adulterer. The guy is just a guy, unless well, he's also married. She would be an adulteress, I guess. Anyway. Yeah. But like, are you an adulterer if you sleep with a married woman while you're single? Like, like it feels like she's get, the one breaking the rules there. You're still in on it, though. Like, you're still a part of it. I guess because yeah. you, like, technically have to consent, but, like, sometimes you don't know. Like, did did she tell him? I mean, she would. Yeah, that's, that's true. She that's would also, also like he would have to know anyway because there's no way that she has that estate without a husband. So he had true. to know. Maybe adulterer is just a convenient word. Anyways, like it's easier to say like, like our translator is not going to say the boy toy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Even though, like, that's how I describe him in yeah, the story. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, he escaped, but the wife cunningly dissembling the fact busied herself in gently raising her fallen husband from the earth. So she's like trying to pretend nothing happened. Man, you hit your head so hard while we were going at it. It was like you were seeing three of us. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's actually pretty perfect. As soon as he had partially recovered, he upbraided her with her adultery and threatened punishment. But she answering, Explain yourself, my lord, said she. You are speaking unbecomingly which must be imputed not to you, but to the sickness with which you are troubled. Gaslight gatekeep girl boss. (laughs) She is gaslighting. Yeah, she is. This is gaslighting 101. Being much shaken by the fall and his whole body stupefied, he was attacked with a disease, insomuch that the man whom I have mentioned as having related these facts to me, the monk, the the aged monk, Visiting him in the pious discharge of his duties, admonished him to make confession of his sins and receive the Christian Eucharist in proper form. But as he was occupied in thinking about what had happened to him and what his wife had said, put off the wholesome advice until the morrow. That morrow, this is there's an exclamation point and like it's set off by dashes. So I'm going to be. Well, hang on, hang on. I want to I want to put something in here before you go on because I have a hunch. Yeah. When the monk is saying, hey, you should take the Eucharist and make confession, that is something you do in hospice as a Catholic. You do that before you die to make sure you go to heaven because confession and communion are two sacraments that you like have to have. So if you like skip out on communion or you skip confession and you get into a car wreck and die, your sanctification is not guaranteed. So I'm thinking that he's about to be dead. Yeah, that's what's going on here. The monk is saying, like, you do not look good, bro. Do you want, like, to clear your soul while I'm here? Yeah. And he's like, well, I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. And then we get, that morrow which in this world he was fated never to behold. Oh, wow, that is a dramatic line. For the next night, destitute of Christian grace and a prey to his well-earned misfortunes. That's prey with an E, like his misfortunes are a predator. Yes, that makes sense. He shared the deep slumber of death. If he were alive today, he would get a Darwin Award. <laughs> yeah, he would, actually. That's pretty bad. A Christian burial, indeed, he received, though unworthy of it, but it did not much benefit him. Because he came back. Yes, for issuing by the handiwork of Satan from his grave at nighttime, 
and pursued by a pack of dogs with horrible barkings. I don't know if the dogs just don't like him because he's dead and they're like chasing him or if he's got a pack of hellhounds. It's honestly ambiguous the way it's phrased. Yeah, I'm that betting could be some wild one, hunt shit. But, but pursued makes it sound weird. Yeah, either way. Yeah, so he's got dogs with yes. him. He wandered through the courts and around the houses, while all men made fast their doors and did not dare to go abroad on any errand whatever from the beginning of the night until the sunrise, for fear of meeting and being beaten black and blue by this vagrant monster. I like that the entire town is aware of it, and they're like, if we're outside, the ghost is going to kick my ass. I like how that's all that's going to happen comparatively. Like, you're not going to yeah, die. You're just going to get beaten real bad. That just seems like a little... I mean, I guess he wants to go after his wife, and he just doesn't like when people get in his way. But well, anyway... You know, maybe he's just not, like, real good at killing people barehanded. Like, it's not like he was buried with weapons. That's true. Like, he also clearly doesn't have a good grip, so... Yeah. But these precautions were of no avail. For the atmosphere, poisoned by the vagaries of this foul carcass, filled every house with disease and death by its pestiferous breath. Ooh, and remember, that's how they thought that diseases were transferred. Was yeah. Like, the air itself is nasty. Which is, I think like we've said before, that's only like half a step away from germ. From germ theory, yeah. It's like very, they, very, they very, They were very almost close. there. They were so close. But I do also like how, like, kind of realistic that sounds. Like, okay, the biggest problem with having a corpse walking around is corpses spread disease. True. Yeah, 10 out of 10. Good point. Already did the town, which but a short time ago was populous, appear almost deserted, while those of its inhabitants who had escaped destruction migrated to other parts of the country, lest they too should die. The man from whose mouth I heard these things, sorrowing over this desolation of his parish, so again, we're going back to the person who he's saying, I heard this firsthand from. Yeah. And he was real upset because all his parishioners were dying of corpse infection. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is what he did about it. Like He's part of the story. That's amazing. Also, do we not go back to the woman? Not yet. Oh, okay. I don't okay. if she comes back or not. All right. Because usually they don't let like a, a horrible woman get away with stuff in these tales. That may happen off stage. Fair. Or so they may have forgotten about it in all the <laughs> distraction of, of, of the corpse, yeah, running around. Anyway, the, the monk who told this story applied himself to summon a meeting of wise and religious men on that sacred day which is called Palm Sunday, in order that they might impart healthful counsel in so great a dilemma, and refresh the spirits of the miserable remnant of the people with consolation, however imperfect. Having delivered a discourse to the inhabitants after the solemn ceremonies of the holy day had been properly performed, because, you know, it's not like this is an emergency. You still have to do all the rituals. Right, of course. Of course. He invited his clerical guests, together with the other persons of honor who were present, to his table. While they were thus banqueting, two young men, parentheses, brothers, close parentheses, maybe there's just confusion about whether the word should be translated as men or as brothers. Ah, that makes sense. Fellows. Yeah. That's a good middle Dudes. ground. <laughs> Dudes. <laughs> I use dude a lot when I'm translating Old English because there's so many words that just mean guy. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, two dudes who had lost their father by this plague, mutually encouraging one another, said, This monster has already destroyed our father and will speedily destroy us also unless we take steps to prevent it. Let us, therefore, do some bold action, which will at once ensure our own safety and revenge our father's death. Okay. There's more. I just wanted to stop as if that were his whole plan. Oh, okay. There is no one to hinder us. 
for in the priest's house a feast is in progress, and the whole town is as silent as if deserted. Let us dig up this baneful pest and burn it with fire. I mean, they, they sound like they know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad plan. Yeah, like, screw the rituals, kill it with fire. Always works. Yeah. It can't walk around in a dead body if there's no dead body. Precisely. It worked in the last story. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could be some kind of ash spirit, which would actually make a, make a great D&D monster. That's like, true. Like the revenant of someone who's been cremated and it's just ash drifting in the air. That's a good boss fight. Like, you think you kill a revenant? Nope. Yeah. Round two, baby. Let's go. Anyway, thereupon... Snatching up a spade of but indifferent sharpness of edge. I like that he takes time out to say, like, it was kind of a shitty spade. I mean, that makes sense. It's kind of a shitty town. Yeah. And hastening to the cemetery, they began to dig. And whilst they were thinking that they would have to dig to a greater depth, they suddenly, before much of the earth had been removed, laid bare the corpse. Yes. I want the Exactly that up. gesture. I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your, your sign language. Yes. Well, I can make the, I'll make the, like, horrible zombie noises in the background. For for the listeners, Zoe is miming like a hand shooting out of the ground. Yeah. Laid bare the corpse, swollen to an enormous corpulence, with its countenance beyond measure turgid and suffused with blood. While the napkin in which it had been wrapped, interesting choice of words, most people would say shroud. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that at all. <laughs> Like, I just picture, like, a hundred of those little square napkins you get when you go to, like, a parent-teacher conference, you know? Why a hundred? It's singular. He just has one. It's the one napkin. strategically. Yeah, yeah, there's just the one. <laughs> anyway, it's nearly torn to pieces. Yeah, I would imagine. The young men, however, spurred on by wrath, feared not, and inflicted a wound upon the senseless carcass out of which incontinently flowed such a stream of blood that it might have been taken for a leech filled with the blood of many persons. I mean, it was swollen. Yes. This description of the corpse is why this is often listed as one of the earliest mentions of a vampire in English. Oh! Well, he's not really eating the dead people. He's, he's just... getting extra blood somewhere. Well, okay, I thought it used a comparative. Well, now it's saying that uh, such a stream of blood that it might have been taken for a leech. It might have been taken for a leech filled with the blood of many persons. So, like, it's it's a comparative, but, like, also, it is implying there's quite a lot of blood. Yeah. It's not really saying where he got it. That's fair. I guess I just read this as, like, that's a lot of blood for a dead body that's been running around town, probably leaking fluids everywhere. Ew, also true. But anyway, what do I know? Yeah, but yeah, uh, apparently in a lot of older vampire folklore, the kind that has not been translated into English, guys, get on it. <laughs> or that wasn't written down right. in the medieval period and therefore we can't use. Like it's um, stuff that was collected by 19th century folklorists and stuff. Right. Like a lot of vampire folklore, the, the vampire isn't this skinny pale thing. It's this bloated runny thing sense. because of all the blood that it's consumed that makes sense yeah interesting so like that's that's the tradition that some people argue this is an example of of an early vampire yeah and if it if it were this would be one of the first times vampires are mentioned in english because that's that's actually a more of an early modern like conceit that's true than, yep. than a medieval one future mac here i don't know why past mac keeps saying in english William of Newburgh wrote his history in Latin. 
or maybe just modern. I modern. think it's eight, more 18th century than anything. Yeah, because Bram Stoker was the one to like first popularize that. Yeah, like there were a couple of vampire stories before him, but most of most of it was still in the oral tradition. Not mm-hmm. a lot had been written down. Right. But anyway, then dragging it beyond the village, they speedily constructed a funeral pile. And upon one of them saying that the pestilential body would not burn unless its heart were torn out. That's also very vampiric. Yeah, that's also very vampire. And I want to know how he knows that. Yeah, that's a good question. The other laid open its side by repeated blows of the blunted spade and, thrusting in his hand, dragged out the accursed heart. Let's go! That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's, that's pretty hardcore. These guys are, like, really plucky. Yeah, it's like, oh, we should have just called the vampire hunters that we apparently have. Like, why were we bothering the priests? You know what just popped into my head? What? This is medieval supernatural. That's probably more accurate. I've been picturing the Venture Brothers. <laughs> See, I like I like just figured that these were two village kids who were like, F- this guy in particular, he killed our dad. And then they decided to become monster hunters and then dot, 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 Supernatural popped into my head and now it's cursed. Yeah, yeah. I watched the first few seasons of Supernatural. I feel like it didn't have as much of a lifespan as they tried to make it have. Oh, it absolutely did not, but it had enough of a fandom to keep it alive, unfortunately. All I know about the last, like, ten seasons, apparently they queerbaited an angel so hard that he went to super hell. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only one of them that actually went to heaven was the Impala. (laughs) I'm willing to believe that. Yeah, that's all I know. Anyway, (laughs) I did not actually follow it for that long. I didn't even get to Castiel, so... Anyway. You didn't miss much. I think the introduction of Castiel is where the, it started going downhill. That makes sense. Not Nothing against Castiel. It just happened to coincide. Like, he was a fine character. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't know. I just like the, I like the Monster of the Week episodes. Yeah. Those I fun. always like Monster of the Week shows better than, than ones who try to take themselves seriously and have, like, long serialized dramas. Like, this is not what I'm here for. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But anyway. Anyway. Yes. So, so he drags Sam out the Dean. heart. Yes, Sam and Dean. One of them drags out the heart. <laughs> this being torn piecemeal and the body now consigned to the flames, it was announced to the guests what was going on. <laughs> I like to think they just like burst open the double doors. Still covered like, in blood. Aragorn, like coming in for like Gondor calls parade. It's just these two guys. They're covered in blood. Grave One's dirt. holding a spade. The other's like blood up to his elbow. Yeah. <laughs> we fixed it. <laughs> You can stop your meeting now. You don't need the ritual, man. Uh, It was announced to the guests what was going on, who, running thither, enabled themselves to testify henceforth to the circumstances. When that infernal hellhound had thus been destroyed, the pestilence which was rife among the people ceased, as if the air which had been corrupted by the contagious motions of the dreadful corpse were already purified by the fire which had consumed it. These facts having been thus expounded, let us return to the regular thread of history. The regular thread? Yeah, like, it, this is a history book. He just take, wanted to take a moment to share some stories. I love that. I love that. He's like, here's this super wicked tale that this one old monk told me. It's excellent. That's amazing. This one's my favorite, I think. This whole thing is a great read. I do think it works better not out loud, because then it... The verbosity really becomes apparent. So when I next time Makes I bring it, it back, I'll do a summary. But like, Makes sense. it's a good read. I really enjoy it. Yep. Yes. Shall we do our segments? Yes, because we are. Yes, yeah, it's, it's two hours. 
So we'll, yeah. we'll save the rest for next year and possibly the year after, because I think we're only a third of the way through what I have. Oh, my God. I really got carried away. You know, I'm here for it. Anyway, let's do some segments. Yes, let's get into it. What say you? Best dialogue. There's so much good dialogue here. Oh, there is. That's right. I was thinking that is one to skip. Then I was like, wait, that poem was like all dialogue. It's all really cool dialogue. Let's see. Like, there's so much, like, hastened unto death, or he, like, joined the sweet, like, sleep Mm -hmm. of the dead or something. Like, there's so many interesting ones like that. Let's see. Pick your favorite, because I don't don't have it in front of me. See, I'm I'm flipping through. Um, All right. I think the best dialogue is from the first dead man in the uh, Three Dead Kings poem. Specifically, when he says... Lo, hear the worms in my belly, they boil and twist. That's just such a good, that's such a gross image. It's so good. And the fact that it starts with lo, I really think helps. 100%. It's also very evocative and it makes you pay attention to what he's saying, which I really, really enjoy. All Tobras. Best death? I mean, there's... (laughs) I don't even remember if there's more than one death because the only one that there's, sticks in my head is the guy falling out of the rafters. There's only one that matters, obviously. Which is fantastic. It's that's a ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. You're so dedicated, you're gonna you're gonna find your wife cheating, and you're so enraged you fall from the rafters, which is a ridiculous place to hide, mm-hmm. and kill yourself over it. Rough. Yes. That is A very bad death for him, but a hilarious death for the rest of us. So funny. Okay. Bestiary. I think we do have bestiary because we've got all these undead critters. Well, we've got the undead critters and we have the hellhounds. That's right. We have hellhounds. Like we've got the wild hunt. It might be the wild hunt. It might not. I'm not sure, but I just like the wild hunt as a Germanic folklore concept. So. But yeah, we've got hellhounds, we've got various kinds of undead dead things. folks. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. demons. Devils, demons, yeah. Gosh, using this in D&D. We've talked about some of this. Why don't we just run through the stories really quick? Like, let's, let's give a rundown of each one of the stories just super fast. Like, remind me what the first one was. We'll go through it and run to the next All one. All right. So the first one is Three Dead Kings. Three Dead Kings. Okay. Well, first off, super great way to impart consequences and or prophecy to the party. Yeah. They're going to listen if that's how you want to talk to them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They might try and fight these things. Like They might. Do be aware that if you present them with three dead people, they're probably out of sheer D&D instinct going to want to fight them so be very careful how you approach that but if you do it in kind of like a setting that isn't as threatening or that they just sort of like happen upon or something that could be really fun really interesting yeah you could also use the maybe you recognize them kind of thing to Ooh. forestall the fighting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. especially if there's dead people in character backstories yeah yeah if, if you're like that guy kind of looks like your uncle. Like, if you can pull that off, you can maybe get them to not fight them until they mm-hmm. hear them out. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, roll a roll a perception check. Roll a history check. Yeah. Like, someone who's on night watch. Like, you see something in the distance, roll a perception check for me. And then, ah, yeah, you know, maybe there's a guy there. 
Because mm-hmm. that's that's a lot less terrifying than like three skeletal creatures come rushing at you in the woods full of spooky mist. It's especially difficult because in my experience, it's an absolute toss up whether your players are going to fight or talk to yeah. any given thing. Like it yeah. has nothing to do with the context of of the moment. Like it seems to be controlled by like mischievous sprites inside their brains or something. Yeah, it's it, who who even knows? Who even knows? It's a toy in cost. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. What's our what's our next one or do we have anything else? It could be interesting to flesh out the appearance of the temples in your world by adding frescoes to them with moral Ooh. weight. Yeah. That tell little fables for the illiterate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or especially, that could be interesting if your players are depicted in the frescoes for their deeds, depending on whether they're well-known or, you know, whatever. And if the frescoes are particularly old, it could also be a way to drop hints about, like, lore and stuff. Ooh, or maybe they come upon the three dead men that they've seen in a fresco before. Yeah. That could be interesting. All right, next one. All right, well, we talked about this next one a lot. It's the one where there's a devil singing and possessing a dead body and for no clear reason, but it just happens. Whatsoever, yeah. Which is absolutely something that you should just pick up and put in your D&D game. Like, 100%. In any context. Yeah, like as an NPC, as like a local bard, whatever. Yeah. I feel like you already know how that would fit into your campaign because I can't imagine that it would Yeah. I really like the idea of either like a cleric or sorcerer who's like, yeah, I cast undead and like the bard on stage in the tavern is giving off aura. Yeah. Or maybe he's simultaneously giving off, you know, whatever fiendish aura. Maybe it's both at once. And then the players are like, what the hell is up with this guy? Or they cast a spell that uh, doesn't affect the living. I mean, it doesn't affect the dead. Ooh, that's a good one. And like, I don't know fascinate or something i don't think affects undead it would be something you'd cast mm-hmm. with civilians around and like mm-hmm. what someone just doesn't react you know like, like what's up with you man <laughs> what what would happen if you cast speak with dead on that like i think you'd get to it, talk it, to the guy who who owned the body before i feel like you'd have to but would it like oust the devil that's i feel like that's up for you to decide yeah whether it pulls the devil out of them I have to imagine that, like, the devil and the corpse would have to fight over what's left of the vocal cords in order to yeah. get something out. So it might be very difficult to understand. I like that. That's a that's a spooky one. All right. Yeah, we talked a lot about that one. We talked a lot about the next one, too, which is the island of the dead that you row uh, souls to. Yes. Which is also something you can just put in your campaign setting. Mm-hmm. Either as world building or as something for your players to do. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would be tricky. I wouldn't want to do it as a, like, you wake up in the middle of the night and are compelled to do X, Y, and Z, or X, Y, and Z, because, <laughs> well, because you don't want to take away player agency, you know? Right. That would be my main issue. What this could be also good for is if you're not a GM, this could be good for your character's backstory. Ooh, in that there you go. They're part of this nation of people whose job it is to ferry dead souls and Mm -hmm. at some point it's going to be their turn yep yep i like that that's good interesting all right and of course there is all kinds of if you're a fiction writer rather than a D &D player or in addition to being a D &D player 
I feel like there is a lot of really good atmospheric stuff here. Oh, yeah, 100%. Especially the whole, like, um, if you cross Hadrian's Wall, you die within 30 minutes. Yeah. That could be a really fun timer for players, too. Like, go get this item. If you cross the wall, you're on a timer. 30 minutes, or you're dead. Good luck. There are probably times in history where that was true, but the reason you died in 30 minutes was because you got killed by Picts. Yeah, yeah, 100%. All right, next one. The next one is the uh, William of Newburgh, where we heard about the two dead people, the Hundepreist and the uh, maybe vampire. I mean, I'm struggling to think about how to incorporate the Hundepriest, except for, like, again, like, wild hunt imagery motif. Mm -hmm. Again, burn it with fire. Yeah, and we already talked about the idea of having a bunch of clerics who are experts in, like, exorcism and mm -hmm. fighting the d undead and demons, but the way they do it is just with fists. I love that. Like, that's I, I think that's, that's a pretty I, good know, idea. I honestly can't believe how many stories there are of people either just talking to the undead, particularly in the sagas, or just straight up fist fighting the undead. Yeah, like you would expect a lot more complicated rituals based on the kind of horror stories we get now. Yeah, yeah. And especially for, for monks writing this down and it being like a church thing. But instead, it's very much like, yeah, so Halvar came back uh, and he tried to f*** my wife. So I punched him in the face and told him to get out or else I'd burn him. Yeah. And it's like, oh, like Halvar. Yeah, I, I remember him. Didn't he die two years ago? Yep. For those of you who haven't listened to our back catalog, that is almost exactly what happens in our first Thanksgiving episode. It absolutely is. You should check it out. It's pretty funny. It's really, it's really good. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> All right. Oh, and of course, you should include um, other types of vampires. Yeah. Bloated. The bloated vampire is pretty vampires. good. Yeah. That would especially be fun as a homebrew monster, like if you stab it or slash it, it explodes like horrible vampiric blood on you and you take damage. That's gross. <laughs> <laughs> you can only kill it with fire damage. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just throwing ideas out here. I think the blood thing would be particularly good for a video game. Because it's harder to model oh, yeah. in a TTRPG, but it would be fine in like a video game. Yeah, yeah. I also like the uh, plot idea of... All the, like, priests and experts and academics are in a meeting <laughs> trying to figure out the best way to deal with the undead. And there's also just a couple, like, random oh. farmhands who are like, what if we just dig him up and stab him a lot? Could work. <laughs> Why not? Like, I, I, I want to put that scenario in a D&D &D game and go, like, which of these two sides are you going to go with? Or do you have some other plan entirely? Yeah, yeah. Or, again, great backstory idea. Yeah. Especially if your character then got run out of town, you know, because it's like you totally like you ruined the ritual. Like, yeah, you got rid of him. But also now you're unholy, question mark, or like you didn't do this right or something that could be interesting. Or you just decide to make your fortune. Also, it was it was extremely disrespectful when you busted into our meeting on church grounds covered in blood and grave dirt. Yeah, get That's out. That's not OK, man. Yeah. <laughs> Or, you know, he just, he decides to make his fortune that way. Yeah. Why not? It's more profitable than being a farmer. Yeah, all you need is a blunt spade. Boom. Done. That'd be a fun leveling system. Start, starting weapons, starting equipment, spade. Oh, man, there's more stuff in this, in this story, too. Because also the idea, we called it out at the time, but it's worth saying again, 
The real problem with having undead around is that corpses carry disease. Mm-hmm. That should definitely be worked into your campaign. Like, that's the yes. threat. Like, yes. yeah, maybe the the zombie will rough you up a little, but most people can can outrun or kind of handle just a, a dead body that's unarmed. Mm-hmm. But the disease that that's going to cause, the corruption being spread all through town, like, that's, that's, that's going to have the rough issues. Mm-hmm. There's a reason we bury or burn these things. Yep, yep. All right. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? Modern culture. Well, we did mention vampires. Yep, vampires, Stoker. We did see, like, and that's a long through line, too. Like, ripping out its heart, burning it. Those are both very old vampiric traditions. Yeah. Other undead stuff. Yes. (laughs) Supernatural is an echo in modern culture, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Begrudgingly. Those are, I feel like those are the biggest ones, but I guess ghost stories. People love ghost stories. Yeah. We've always had ghost stories. Yeah, one of the other ones that we didn't get to, but we'll probably get to like um, the next time we do these or the time after that, was actually originally transcribed from the manuscript by an author of ghost stories because like his day job was academic, but also he published ghost stories. Nice. And the, and so when apparently he just saw a notation somewhere that like, like in Latin, in like a catalog of manuscripts and like, oh, and someone from like a couple hundred years after this manuscript was originally written, seems to have written a bunch of ghost stories on a blank page. And like, that's all it said. And he's like, I have to find it. That's incredible. I also like that that displays that we've always loved ghost stories. Mm-hmm. Like someone wrote down that little catalog on purpose. Yeah. That's fun. That's fun. Omitatus. D&D party. Let's go. All right. I, Sam and Dean. Yeah. Yeah. The one monk who didn't shirk his duty because he got cold. <laughs> That's right. Friar, I um, think. But yeah. Yeah. And then who, who else? One of the kings was kind of fighty. I kind of liked him. That's true. Yeah. All right. Do him. There we yeah. go. These are all Party. very martial classes, but yeah. probably make something work. That's true. I mean, that one that one monk did have a whole plan to do a ritual. So if we needed a spellcaster, we could throw him in there. He was probably going to be effective. He just decided to have a meeting first. That's true. That's true. Like, it might have worked. Like, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. It was just faster to do it the other way. <laughs> Burn it. The Tolkien tally. Nothing for Tolkien. Are you sure? <sighs> How do you get to Valinor, oh, Zoe? Oh. Okay, all right, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I don't you think, get to I don't Valinor know if that's related, by going but... through the. I mean, it's it's sort of related. He um, might have read it. I don't know. Well, it's definitely related in the sense that the metaphor, etc., for death for elves was to go through the mists to another land. Oh, I was thinking the boats. Well, they take boats to go to the other land. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's mists for Valinor. But yeah, I, w- I was thinking like Britia is Valinor here, and they take the boats. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's also the Cairns in the Fellowship of the Ring. Bef- like, they leave, they sort of leave the Shire, and then there's the burial mounds. Yeah. With the, the undead. Cause they're, yeah, the Barrow Whites. They're not, yeah, the Barrow Whites. They're not ghosts, they're undead. Yeah. And they come back and they want to sacrifice Frodo and the other hobbits so they can, like, come back more powerfully, I guess? It's never really clear yeah. what's going on there. Those are Aragorn's ancestors, by the way. I think that's another that's another one where it's like that's definitely a parallel, but I we can't swear that he had it in mind because I think the Barrow Whites are mostly based on Draugr. 
Yeah, I think so too. All right. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. No food, really. Blood. It's not proven. <laughs> no, it's just it's implied. Not proven. All right. Ooh, well, if we stretch our definition of food, you could say that the worms were eating those dead guys in the oh first story. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Weren't you the one who said we should skip some of these segments? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> All right. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Any terminology for the Dungeon Master's Dictionary? I feel like there's a lot of fun language used in the poem, so maybe consider that. Some hunting terms you could get from the from the first one, and just like I, I just think it's a generally a good idea to look into hunting terms because that was such a big thing among high society in the Middle Ages. Definitely, definitely. I liked a lot of the phrases used by the three dead men. There were some more archaic terms in there that were fun. See, I'm trying to look for specific ones. Oh, calling farmers bondmen, I think, is pretty good. Oh yeah, there there was also that idiom, but I suppose you're not really going to use that one. Yeah, that's that'd, be, a, that's a little... that'd be difficult to bring in. Yeah, complex. All right. Street smarts. What are we learning besides kill it with fire? Yep. Also tear out its heart. Tear, yeah, tear out its heart and then burn it and scatter the ashes. But before you do that, just figure out whether or not it's actually trying to kill you or hurt you, or you know whether it's going to give you a message and actually help save your soul. Yeah. Also, whether it's actually undead, because, you know, those aren't good for living things either. True. Very true. Yeah. Identify your target first, I think, is a good good lesson for, for this text. Don't trust singers. They're full of devils. Yeah, apparently. Bards, am I right? Yeah. Who knew that you could multi-class bard warlock like that? <laughs> it's pretty good, actually. <laughs> Don't hide in the rafters. Yeah. What's that about, man? Like... That's just stupid. Yeah, I don't know if they had bed frames at the time, but you'd think that under the bed would be the most sensible thing. They totally had bed frames. Haven't you seen those beautiful old, like, four-poster medieval beds? Oh, that's true. All right, I don't know if this person had a bed frame. Right. There were definitely bed frames around. I don't know if everyone had them. There, there were other ways to hide. Yes. Please don't hide where you could fall out. Best moment. Bursting in at the feast. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Covered in blood, holding a spade. And going, we've solved the problem that you're having this meeting about. Yes. Yes. That is, yeah, that's the best. There's, that's ideal. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. The court. Man. I feel like this is a cop out, but I want, I want one of the brothers. I want the brother who like ripped its heart out. I mean, it is kind of a cop-out, but we we do have, like, a limited number of options. So yeah. I'm just going to take the other brother. All right. You can type them in as Sam and Dean in whichever order you please. Oh, Lord. All right. <laughs> You're getting Sam. Final rating. Usually when we have more than one, we rate them separately. That's true. So this is going to be, this is already going to be a long episode, but I think we might actually break the two hour mark. Oof. Like after editing Oof. even. All right. So Three Dead Kings. Classic. Fairly short, sweet and to the point. Mm-hmm. Not too verbose. I like that one. Weird bit about the monastery at the end. Mm, that's going to subtract a point. A little bit stereotypical. Eight. I'm going to give it a seven. Like you said, it is a classic. It's a very good representation of a classic. 
I feel like there's a excessive amount of like repetition <laughs> and yeah. maybe some of the dialogue could have been more to the point. Mm-hmm. But like basically I think making it a metrically and alliteratively complex poem with a rhyme scheme has taken away from the actual story. That's true. That's a fair point. I feel like this was probably sung. Very probably. Yeah. All right. Weird short story about the singing devil. Six. I like it, but there's no context. And the bit about the monk talking at the end had nothing to do whatsoever with anything else. Yep. I will match you at a six. I love out of context weirdness, but that's all that there is here. Yeah. It's it's just weird. All right. What else? Procopius, his island of Britia. I like that one. Maybe I'm a little bit biased because some of the other like Irish journeys there and back are a little bit more engaging and wacky, but this one's solid. I'll give it a seven. I actually like it a little better than that. I'm going to give it an eight because I really like the atmospheric, like mythical quality to it. Like I find that very evocative. Yes. And our stories of revenants from William of Newburgh. They both get nines. Like... Yeah, the only criticism I have is that they're too verbose. Yeah, yeah, that's about it. And that might just be a translation error. Yeah. Yeah, wild. All right. What does that put them at? Should we just call that like an eight overall? Oh, here, I'll let me write it down and I'll do the math later. Okay. 7.5 Welcome to the Leech's Corner. All right, so I wanted a thematically appropriate Leech's Corner. So I found one. Okay, I'm excited. Yeah, I had to translate this as well because there there wasn't a um, public domain translation. Someone's okay. done one, but not only is it not public domain because it's too recent, but I can't even get it at the Purdue Library. Like I'd have to use interlibrary loan. Wow. Okay, interesting. So I just didn't and I did it myself. So the Peterborough Lapidary is a text from the 1400s that collects medical and magical lore about stones as known in medieval England, combining information from a variety of sources to form the longest lapidary in Middle English. Wow. It lists several stones multiple times, perhaps as a result of confusion from collating various texts. That makes sense. The mythical stone, generally rendered into modern English as diadokos, is I think how you say that? It's D-I-A-D-O-C-O-S. Or sometimes there's an H after the C. Diadokos, maybe? Mm. Yeah. Apparently, uh, he's also a saint. Future Mac. Past Mac 100% did not register that Zoe said that because he was absorbed in reading his little script. So I had to look it up. And yes, there is a Saint Diadokos. It's spelled with the H in the Eastern Orthodox Church. That's kind of cool. This stone is listed in the Peterborough Lapidary once as Diadosa and once as Diadotes. That's a D-I-A-D-O-S-E for the first one and D-E-A-D-O-T-E-S for the second one. And here are both of those entries. Diadokos is a stone which is pale, and he... I haven't been able to work out why some of the stones in this lapidary are it and some are he, but I'm just going to roll with it because I'm not finna misgender a f***ing rock. Yeah, fair enough. It's not consistent within the text itself either, so be prepared to switch between it and he for no apparent reason. Sure. And he is found in water, and he is good to avoid devils. And he throweth away much darkness. 
and if it be set to a dead man, he loseth his nature. There's some pronoun referent confusion here, I think. Because it's somewhat ambiguous as to whether this stone stone or the dead man loses its nature. It's not clear. Uh, It's possible to read this as the stone losing its magical powers. But since this clause called the stone it just a moment ago, and the closest noun before the pronoun he is the dead man, I'm inclined to read this as saying the dead man loses his nature as a dead man. Like is necromanced back back to some kind of semblance of life. Oh, shit. Like, grammatically, that's the best way I can interpret that, even if it no, makes... No, that makes sense. Makes more sense the other way around, commonsensically. Right. But also, this is a medieval text. All right. And this stone is like to Beryl. Mm-hmm. Diodokos, it just starts over again. I think that he just slapped together two... Two. Yeah, into one. Because it says very similar things. Also, really quick, Beryl is, according to the, what is this, Merriam-Webster, a transparent pale green, blue, or yellow mineral consisting of a silicate of beryllium and aluminum, sometimes used as a gemstone. So this is like a different stone. Yes, Beryl, yeah. Sorry, I've spent like two years working in a place that sells rocks, so I forget that not everyone knows (laughs) the rocks. Yes. Uh, And it is able to have answers of fiends, for it conjures fiends and phantoms. The word actually used there is exeteth, but if you look it up in the Middle English Dictionary, you'll find this very sentence is used as an example of definition 8 of exeteth, to call up or conjure. Interesting. So it conjures fiends and phantasms. And if it happens that it touch a dead man, it loses his virtue, for that stone hateth a dead man. That's more clear. And he is squeamish of a thing that is overcome with death, as it is said in books. I like the stone is squeamish. That is literally the word they used. That's amazing. And this is the second entry for Diodokos, which is, the first one is number 60. This is number 64. So there's not even like a lot of space before he just did it again and didn't realize. Yeah. Okay. Diodokos is a stone that is like barrel. If you would test it in your mouth, it's definitely test and not taste. I checked. The Middle English word is actually pleva, cognate with modern prove. So mm-hmm. if you would test it in your mouth. Oh, like biting gold yeah. to make sure it's 24 carat. Yeah. Yeah. Your mouth shall burn, unless you take him out at once. Ew. He that beareth this stone, no phantasm shall overcome him. Also, if this stone touches a dead body thrice, this body shall arise and move. This one's clear. Very clear. Okay. Kind of. The word that I translated as move is moa, which could also be translated as mo, like with a scythe, or just to have ability. Huh. And it gets confusing in this next bit of the sentence. It says, It shall arise and move by virtue of this stone, but he shall neither speak nor act. So it's not clear what he does. Maybe you, like, prep the body with the stone and then you can shove a soul or a demon in it? My best, like, again, trying to apply common sense to what's probably complete nonsense after having gone through the text transmission process. Right. But, like, what I'm assuming this means is, like, It starts breathing and becomes clearly alive, but you can't actually do anything with it. Weird. I would love to see that happen. Like, this is one of those things that, like, I want to test out Mm -hmm. just to see what would happen. And, like, probably nothing's going to happen. Like, nothing's actually going to happen. I know this, whatever. But the sheer, like, the little tiny piece of me (laughs) that really wants it to be a thing would love to try this out. Yeah. That said... Use that in your campaigns. It can be whatever you want it to be. Yeah. 
There's a little bit more, too. Ooh, okay. And if you wish, you may command whatever devil of hell you wish, and the devil shall do no man harm. So I guess you can only command the devil to do good things. I like that. This feels like you're preparing a body to be inhabited by a demon. Yeah, it really does. That works together well. Yeah. And it ends by telling us, This stone may not often be named, for a man shall never die while this stone is upon him. Philosopher's stone much? So you have to keep it secret. It may not often be named because you're like, that's dangerous if a lot of people get a hold of this. Yeah, that makes sense. Wild. Okay. And that is our leech's corner. Yeah. That about finishes us off for the night. Yeah, unless you have anything more to add. Uh, I don't have too much more to add, except that if you are interested in joining our community, we do have a Discord community that is growing, uh, and we would love for you to join us. We have some cool additions that I just wanted to highlight, uh, and these will unfortunately be pretty old by the time this comes out, but I wanted to highlight them anyway because they're super cool. A little bit on topic, Hipster Wizard in our Discord said... I came upon some info about the role of ritual divine statue possession in Neoplatonic theurgy in the early common era. With theurgy being essentially divinely sanctioned magic, magicians often consecrated statues of the god they invoked in order to receive direct instruction. I thought this sounded eerily similar to Virgil the Mechanical Necromancer making a spy statue, which refers back to our... What episode did we just do for that? Uh, I believe that was from the Gesta Romanorum, yeah. Yep. While I'm fairly certain Virgil had little to do with this particular form of magic, the animation of statues was an extant magical practice in the Greco-Roman world, though it was definitely not used to spy on your subjects to make sure that no one works on your son's birthday. (laughs) Yep. Uh, If anyone's curious, this theurgy is specifically that of the Chaldean oracles. So thank you, Hipster Wizard. That's a little bit more information on that one. And yeah, it does connect back to Virgil, our mechanical necromancer, who we're very fond of here. Indeed. Also, for those who are more interested in Percival, who is like a version of Percival who's the opposite of Perlis Vouse, Lady Antiope recommends the book Spear by Nicola Griffith. She states, or I guess, let's see, not Nicola, but Lady Antiope Apologies if I misgendered you there. I I saw Lady and went with the she. So anyway, Beautiful Prose, a realistic feeling early 6th century, and Percival is the Welsh version, Peritor, and a decidedly queer pagan woman. But there's still a grail quest. So yeah, cool book review there. Do check that out. There's also been some neat art lately. AC put up a great picture of his D&D party. It's like all medieval manuscript inspired. I love yes. it. Yes. So cool. Definitely check that out. And AC also posted a cool new article. This is from the other side of the world. This is from Fiber Loom and Technique, the Journal of Tracing Patterns Foundation. A 700 years old blue and white batik from Indonesia. It is a 14th century chunk of fabric which survived so that's really really cool it's extremely rare very very rare uh for that climate biome whatever so yeah very very cool also batik is just cool batik is a really cool kind of fabric as i said earlier it's one of my mom's favorite fabrics to work with i think that was off air oh yeah you're right it was off air anyway it's one of my mom's favorite fabrics to quilt with and work with so anyway shout out to my mom uh (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I think that ends our 
Halloween episode. No, it doesn't, for I have a trick. All right, as far as tricks go, it's fairly benign. Zoe and I are planning for an upcoming event on the podcast, and we recorded, separate to recording this episode, a little discussion of what that's going to be. So, here's that. All right, listeners, today we have something extra special to announce and bring to you. As this is our Halloween episode, that marks basically, what is it, our two-year, three-year? Is it our third-year anniversary? I think it's two. I think think it's it's two. two. Yeah. So it's our two-year anniversary of the podcast, which is super exciting. And so to celebrate as we go into the new year and also to celebrate our second anniversary of the podcast, I actually cannot believe it's been that long. And we've built up such a fantastic community by by doing this, by just being the weird nerds that we are. Anyway, we have gathered together our little courts and come up with, well, Mac mostly has done all the heavy lifting here on coming up with a tournament. So Mac, I turn it over to you. What can our listeners expect with this? And we have audience participation. So stay aware, stay wary. You are involved in this process, listeners. Whether you want to be or not, no, Uh, it is voluntary. We won't show up in your home. Percival might. Percival might. I think he's like a vampire. I think you have to invite him out of his book. Ooh, creepy. Maybe you consent by reading his adventure. Ooh, that's worrying. I don't want him showing up in my home. No, I don't like that. Anyway. Anyway, on topic. We're very bad at being on topic on this podcast. Terrible. All right, so the structure that we're going to use here is... As Zoe said, we've each drafted these, like, courts of characters over the course of the last two years. And we were originally just doing it because our inspiration saga thing drafts Thingmen and I wanted an equivalent. Because it's cool. Yeah, because it's cool. But we want to make that actually mean something and do something fun and interactive with this. So we are going to ask you, the listeners, to suggest quests to send these characters on. Send us via email, Discord, Facebook, Twitter, any of our social medias. We've got an email on the site. Twitter's always an option. We've got the Discord community, of course. I might make a channel for that. But yes, make sure it's about a paragraph. Don't, don't send us, like, huge, massive missives here. I would, in fact, say at most a paragraph. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Like, less than a paragraph is fine. A sentence is fine. <laughs> Paragraph's good. Yeah, we'll say sentence to paragraph length. Anyway, send us these ideas. If you have had to give an elevator pitch of a D&D style quest, send us that. Something like, your characters have to go throw a cursed ring into Mount Doom. And each of us will draft a selection from our court to perform that task and describe their strategy for performing that task. And then you, the listeners, will vote on which of our solutions you think was the best. Yes. So essentially, we draft from our court. We send out parties of adventurers to go on the quests that you give us as our quest givers. And then we, I guess, pitch how we do it. We narrate how we do it. And then you tell us, essentially, which of our parties succeed. Yes, that's a much better phrasing. (laughs) Yes, please bring us your quest ideas. I would say probably refrain from any drastic sci-fi Warhammer-themed things, since we are generally 
within our medieval fantasy realm. But within that, go f***ing crazy, man. And bring us whatever you have, and we'll pick our favorites. And, because we won't be able to go through all of them. But we will pick our favorites, and we'll probably present a whole bunch of other wonderful ideas that we have to our listeners. So yes, please come, interact, get involved, and you all will be the judge. So feel free to judge us as we do this. So we're going to aim to do this in the new year, but we need your ideas now, listeners. So please, with whatever means you desire, whether that is Twitter, Homing Pigeon, Discord, Facebook, please give us all of your ideas. Yes, and... While we're going to plan to air this as the first episode of 2023, since we record pretty well ahead of time, that means we've probably got about a month from the time this episode comes out to the time when we record this tournament. So we should give a real deadline. What's a good solid deadline? A solid deadline for our listeners? Yeah, like when when do we need stuff by? Ooh, by Thanksgiving. We've, we've got our Thanksgiving special, so... I feel All like right. that's pretty good. Uh, a lot of our listeners aren't American, so why don't we round that out to the end of November? Boom. Perfect. End of November. Yes. Try and send us stuff by the end of November because that's when we will we will record this in December. So we yes. want to have everything ready by then. Anyway, we are excited to hear what you come up with. Yes. And now back to your regular end of episode material. So please do feel free to join our community. You can find our links on our social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, any of those. And if you can't find those for some reason, then just message us and we'll get you a link and get you into our Discord. Yeah. And with that, yep. have a wonderful spooky season and celebrate however yes, you Yes, happy Halloween. Yeah. yeah, or whatever holiday you celebrate. Apparently Halloween is really just a U.S. thing. It is. They did not do it in Ireland. I was so sad. I was yeah. so sad. <laughs> but anyway, yes. Happy Halloween. Happy autumn. Happy October. All of the above. Carve some pumpkins. It's actually really fun. It's really like, even fun. if it's not for a holiday, it's, it's just, just fun. fun to do. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. So, running into things.